Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Two weeks ago, we unveiled uh, a new vision for the church, a vision that uh, we believe as a board of elders is, is just all-encompassing and demands our best, our attention, our finances, our, our energy, our blood, sweat, tears, so to speak, to just give ourselves to, to see God work in our midst. And we're just asking, what can God do through us if we're willing to trust Him and follow Him in the days and weeks and months and years ahead? And it's important for us to understand that as we've thought about this vision and and are unpacking it, we want you to remember that the vision has four core components, four key components. And Frank, if you'd show that next slide, I'd appreciate that. Ultimately, we believe God is calling us as a church to do our very best by the grace of God and the power of God to try to reach over a thousand people with the good news of Jesus over the next 10 years. We want to help them become fully devoted followers of Christ and become members of a local church, part of a local church, and grow in their faith and just give it out to others, share the good news with others as well. And we want to do that in an area that basically is within 10 miles of this building where we're sitting today. It's what we're giving ourselves to, our energy and prayers and effort also for all of that. The four components that help us get to that goal, short-term goal, so to speak, for the long-range vision, they're simply these things. For us to be a church that's healthy and strong, where people can truly be connected and grow and become more like Jesus and know that they're loved by God, we need to be a church that is sticky, not that we spill, you know, grape juice everywhere and, you know, and, and have gum on the carpet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that we build the kind of relationships where people feel like they belong, where they're welcomed and included, where they feel at home here at the chapel, that we're truly a family that includes and welcomes other people. And to do that, we want to double the number of growth groups that we have. We want to connect people so that they can grow, connect to grow. That's really the key there. And I'm really thankful for Brian Robinson and Dan Davis, two of our elders that are championing this, and along with Pastor Josh Stratton's leadership and also Jessica Robinson's leadership later on this year. I'm really grateful for these folks helping to kind of push and do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to helping us double the number of growth groups that we have here at the chapel and helping the chapel become a more welcoming and including kind of place. But you know, relationships are so important, but why do we have those relationships? It's because the most important relationship. We want people to meet Jesus and to know him and build a relationship with him. And that's what discipleship is all about. Discipleship, according to the theologian Scott Morgan, is just simply this. It's making Jesus the king of your life. I think the passage we're going to look at today tells us that. It's, it's coming to the place where I say, I'm making Jesus my king in everything. I want him to rule over me in every area of my life. And for us to do that, we need to be intentional because that doesn't just happen by accident. I mean, think about it. Physically, when somebody is born, if they get food, if they get shelter, if they stay healthy, if they're protected from danger, if they get enough sleep... 
their body begins to change and they begin developing and become bigger and larger and consume more food and take up more energy and they get louder and all this other stuff. And that just naturally happens. But it doesn't mean they become an adult. It doesn't mean that they mature. They may physically get larger, but it doesn't mean that they grow up. And there's a, there's a sense where you can be a Christian for a long time, but never grow up. And we're talking about intentionally doing things, consistently doing things that, helping, that will help people, help me, help you grow up in our faith, that we become more like Christ and make him the king of everything in our lives. And so to do that, we recognize that there are processes and programs and classes and mentorship and things that we need to offer as a church to help people move along a path of discipleship so that Jesus becomes the king of everything in their lives. And so, to help illustrate this, there's there's a card that I gave you when you came in today. I hope you received this. If you didn't receive one of these cards, would you just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get one? Uh, could somebody back there, Bree, could you tell Vicki to bring some of these cards out here and make sure they get handed out? And just keep those hands up. I see those hands. I see those hands. If you want to come forward afterwards, ma'am, and pray, we'd be glad to. Just letting you know that. Okay. All right. This person needs a card up here. Anybody else? There's one out there on the ends. I see that hand. Okay. Very good. But if you just would take a look at, take a look at the card... Find the side where there's a circle. Look at the side that has the circle on it, the black circle, and it's got the guy in the middle of it, and he has a black heart. And the black heart doesn't mean that he's a bad guy or evil. It doesn't mean that. It just happens to be a black and white drawing, okay? But that's a, that's a picture of somebody who is growing so they can serve. And, you know, in a sense, we're all like spiritual Grinches, before we meet Jesus, and we meet Jesus, and the light turns on, and we see how beautiful and how wonderful and how great Jesus is, and our heart grows 10 times larger and bigger and bigger and bigger, just like the Grinch did in the story of, of how he stole Christmas. You see, there's a sense where when we make Jesus the king of everything, our lives grow and become richer, fuller, deeper, more beautiful, more blessed by God, and more, more fun to be around. <laughs> you know, that's the change that takes place in our lives when Jesus becomes the king of everything in us. So there's a question at the top of that card. And the question is just simply this, is what areas of your life would you like to see grow? And what I mean by this, and, and this is not just me, this is not some cockamamie idea from Pastor Scott. I want to admit that I've got two co-conspirators. I'm going to rat them out right now. One is Jim Green, one of our other elders. He and I are working together representing the elder board on this issue of helping us become intentional about making disciples here at the church. And we have drawn in a third co-conspirator, and that is Rob Friel, who is, by the way, a curriculum developer and curriculum director for one of the local school districts. And he's somebody also who happens to love Jesus very much and is a good dad and a good husband. And in the process of being a devoted Christ follower, he's excited about helping us develop plans and processes that will help each other grow spiritually because it won't just happen by accident. It's, not, it's, it's never by accident that Jesus becomes the king of everything. It, it takes intentional choices on our part to let him be Lord of all in our lives. And so on this card, I want to ask you a question. This is something that I'm asking and Jim Green is asking and Rob Field is asking. I want to ask you, in what areas of your life would you like to see grow? Now, I got to admit, my waistline grows pretty easily. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm, all I got to do is eat. 
and not exercise, and it grows quite well. Thank you very much. But what I would like to say is this. What areas of your life would you like to see spiritual growth or, or any kind of growth in your life? Maybe you're saying, you know what, I just struggle. I struggle with, Pastor, you're saying all the time I've got to read the Bible. Well, I read the Bible, it's like dry as sawdust. I don't get anything out of it. And if you're going to move forward spiritually, you've got to be willing to admit that something is hard and not going right. I'd like to grow in reading scripture. Or I, when I talk, I feel like I might as well be talking to a brick wall. God doesn't answer me. I'd like to grow in prayer. Maybe it's an issue of my wife and I are having these fights all the time. My son and I are butting heads all the time. My parents and I don't talk to each other. And I would like help in dealing with these broken relationships. I'd like to grow in those areas. I'd like help in managing my finances because there's always too much month and too little money in the checkbook. And I don't know how to deal with that. Does, does God have anything to say about my finances? Does God have anything to say about the, the, the habit that I have that I've never told anybody about and I'm afraid to tell them about, but it's controlling me. I think about it all the time. I think about wanting to do it, but I also think about how I wish I could stop, but I can't. And I'd like to grow in that area. And I wish somebody had the cosmic bolt cutters that they could just snap the chain and set me free, but I don't know how to do that. I want to tell other people about Jesus. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow, but I don't know how. Maybe there's something that you could jot down. Maybe it's one, two, three things, whatever. A couple little bullet points. Maybe you want to write a paragraph. Either way, just what would you like help growing in? Okay. Now the second side of the card has a little picture of an arrow. And the arrow has three words on it. It has the word mentorship, membership, and ministry. And that's just a simple way of saying we're recognizing that there's a process going on here. That in other words, when you trust in Jesus, you haven't arrived. What we're going to discover today in the passage of Scripture that we're reading is that most of us think we know who Jesus is. I got news for you. You don't. Neither do I. I'm still learning. I have a lot to learn about who Jesus is. I'm surprised by him all the time, and I hope you are too. Mentorship is the idea. Well, what about somebody who's brand new in this Christian faith? They're just getting started. They need to be taught the basics. They need someone to come alongside and coach them, encourage them, mentor them, guide them step by step. Not so much taking a class, not so much reading something or watching something on YouTube or reading it on the internet, but I'd like somebody just to kind of be with me and walk me through this process and help me. That's the idea of mentorship. But then there's a recognition that it's not just you and your buddy going through some very challenging things and helping you grow. Ultimately, you have to be part of the family of God. You've got to be part of the body of Christ. You're a member. You're a vital living organism in the body of Christ. You're a member of it. And so when we talk about membership, it's not just about joining the church. Like I signed on the dotted line, I stood up and said the church covenant, I'm a member now. It's bigger than that. It's more than that. By membership, we're talking about this full-orbed idea of all that's involved in following Christ. Our spiritual gifts, our identity in Christ, who he is, what he's done, how it impacts our lives, and how we live that out in everyday life. That's all the concept of membership. How do I live as a member of Christ's body? How do I live as a member of his family? What that means. 
And the thing is, as we grow in that membership, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we understand him better, and as we grow in letting him be king of everything in our lives, as we do that, it overflows. And it overflows in a good way. And other lives are touched. And that's what ministry really is. Ministry is not going out and performing a task or filling an office or volunteering for a job. Ministry is sharing the overflow of your life, your relationship with Christ. When Jesus is the king of everything, your wife will see it, your kids will see it, your neighbors will see it, your coworkers will see it, your, the folks at church, your growth group can't help but see it. And you want to make your growth group better, your class better, your neighborhood better, let Jesus be the king of everything in your life. And there'll be ministry. People's lives will be touched. On that card, on that side of the card, where the arrow is, it talks about the process of discipleship. How do we let Jesus be the king of everything? Okay, there's a question there also. What areas of your life would you feel comfortable sharing to help others grow? This is another question that, that Jim and Rob and I are just asking of ourselves and our church. What are, other, what are the areas of my life that I could share with other people? Is there something that I've learned? Uh, you know, maybe I've broken a bad habit and I can coach and help and mentor somebody else how to break one. Maybe I have something that I've learned. I struggled with reading the Bible and I've learned how and it really, this plan has helped me or these things, principles have helped me. Or, you know, here's somebody, you know, I've, I, my kids aren't perfect, but you know what? We survived the teenage years without killing each other. I might be able to pray for and mentor and help another couple that's struggling with their teenagers and be able to say a little more than the only advice I could say one time when one lady asked me, my daughter is so out of control, I don't know what to do. I said, put your seatbelt on and hold the steering wheel with both hands. Hang on. You probably can give better advice than that that would really help. Maybe there's something, maybe you've learned to pray and you sense that God hears and answers your prayer. Maybe you just are a wise listener and counselor. Do you have something that you could give? You've, you, you can handle your finances well and you honor Christ as a good steward. Is there some area of your life, maybe you've got time. That's one of the most precious things you have. I'm willing to give time and just be with somebody. Maybe it's the children in the nursery or the teens on a retreat or the senior citizens of our congregation. I'm willing to go and just be with them. Do you have something in your life you feel comfortable sharing that could help somebody else grow? Take a few moments and jot those things down as well. Just, you don't have to turn in the card now, but just while we're talking in this service, as you're listening, maybe the Holy Spirit will give you an idea. Maybe there's a prompting. Maybe your spouse will lean over and say, you should write down this because you're good at that. Or you should do that. You know, I don't know what it is, okay? But maybe you just get an idea, just jot it down. Now, this is what I would like you to do, is when the service is over, take that card and put it in one of the black baskets at the back. Vicki Collins is gonna be standing at the back door. She promised to block the door until everybody could give a card, okay? Well, she's not a linebacker, but uh, she might be able to knock you down, okay? All seriousness aside, I am encouraging you, I said that that way, all seriousness aside, I encourage you to drop the card in the basket, and if you can't give it to Vicki, put it on the back table and 
leave it there. You might be wondering, do I have to sign my name? Do I have to give my phone number or email? No, you don't. It's anonymous. But if you want to, great. That's up to you, okay? But it would really help us as we think about what are things we could be doing as a church that will help people grow in specific areas. What do they need? Who could we share and help deploy in order to help do this, okay? So I'd appreciate that. So hang on to this card. Don't just use it as a bookmark. Don't turn it into a shopping list. You put down something that God is saying to you that you could do, how you would answer the two questions on the cards, okay? So that's actually just halfway through the goals of the vision. Talking about growing in order to serve and growing to help others. And we're equipping disciples in doing that. So as we work on that, we recognize, though, there's a community in need. There's people all around us who are broken who need to hear about Christ and join his family. And so that's where we kind of shift gears and begin looking outside the church and think about how do we serve consistently in the community? And how do we share the gospel? Use that service not to ram the gospel down someone's throat, but instead, how do we share our talents and abilities, our love and prayer and concern, our generosity, as we give generously, as we touch the lives of people in our community, as we serve them and do that consistently, the doors are going to open by the grace of God that we get to tell people about Jesus. And that's what we're praying for and hoping for. And we're asking God for the boldness and confidence and opportunities to do that. And we're trying to serve so we can share. Next week, we're going to talk about that. And I am so excited about next week's message. I can't wait for you to hear all about it. But as we do this welcoming and including, and we're connecting to grow, and as we grow to serve, and as we serve to share, out of that is going to come the birth of a new church where we will be able to send out into our community people who are equipped and prepared to share the gospel, to welcome and include and make disciples and serve their community so that other people can meet Jesus Christ as well. And we'll be parents, Littlestown Chapel will be the parents of a brand new church, another church in our community. And so that's our ambition is that we're doing all this serving and we're doing all this sharing so that we can actually plant the church and expand God's kingdom in this way. And we're going to be talking about that on, on February 9th. And I'm excited about that. And I hope you'll be here for the congregational meeting and that discussion about what church planning looks like and why we as a church should be involved in that. Many of us are thinking, but things aren't perfect here yet. We're not where we should be spiritually yet. Why are we embarking on trying to plant another church? And you know you're exactly right. But it's part of the stretching. It's part of the exercising. It's part of the godly, scriptural faith-based risk-taking that stretches our faith and allows us to move out. That's part of the maturing process in our lives. That's part of what helps us become a stronger church in the process as we do this, do this exercise. And so I encourage you to hang on as we share these things with you in the days to come. So <coughs> take some time, fill out the card, and before you leave today, make sure you you drop the card off in the basket. I appreciate it very much. Some of you are thinking, can I take it home and think about it? And the answer is, yes, you can because I'm a nice pastor. But at the same time, I bet you the card doesn't come back unless you prove me wrong. And I hope you will. I encourage you to take a few moments. What you do today is actually better than the perfect epistle that you're going to write at home. 
I would be encouraged, even if it's just a couple words, just a couple bullet points, it's better that way today than it will be not getting it next week. So think about that as well. You drop it off at the info desk or put it in one of the black baskets. We'd appreciate it very, very much. Thank you for that. Now, let's expand on this idea of what does it mean to grow to serve? What does this process of discipleship that we're talking about? If we're going to reach 1030 by 2030, if we're trying to reach 1% of our population, the 103,000 or so that live within 10 miles of Littlestown Chapel, where we're seated this morning, if we're going to do that, we have to have a process of helping people meet Jesus Christ and grow in him so that they let him be the king of everything in their lives. And we have to model what that looks like. What does it look like for a church that makes Jesus the king of everything? And I tell you that there's a passage of scripture that I think is absolutely fascinating for us to look at and explore. Now, I mentioned to you on the Sunday, actually the last two Sundays, that as we've been exploring and unpacking what this vision looks like and the four components here in this short-term goal, as we've been exploring what this looks like, we've been looking at the life of Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And one of the reasons why we picked Peter is it's because of what Dan Davis said. Dan Davis said that Peter, as we were talking one day, Peter's like the every man, the every Christian. I think most of us, when we look at Simon Peter, we say, yep, I would have done that too. Or some of us would say, I would have never gotten out of that boat. Oh, I would have kept my mouth shut. And the people around you go, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> or yes, you would, or whatever. But there's a sense where most of the time, all of us, in one way or another, identify with Peter. He's like an everyman spiritually. And I think often in the stories of Scripture, in the life of Jesus, he is presented that way. He is the person that we all, the followers of Jesus, can identify with. And he challenges us and helps us see how we would personally interact with Jesus. And we see that with his questions and his relationship, his dialogue, his mistakes, his failings, his good things that he did as well. We can see ourselves in Simon Peter as we relate to Jesus. So this morning, what I'd like us to do is take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and I'd like us to begin reading at verse 27. And what we're focusing on today is this whole thing about what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we've already given you an answer that I think is borne out in this passage. You've got to make Jesus the king of everything. That's the goal here. You make Jesus the king of everything. His goal is let me rule over your life because that's the best life. We often come to him, fix my finances. But Jesus says, let me be Lord of all and your finances will be more than enough. We say, I want a better marriage, a happier marriage. And Jesus says, let me be king of your marriage and you'll be happy enough and holy enough in your marriage. I want to be a better parent. I want to be successful at my job. And Jesus would say, let me be king over those areas of your life, and your job will be more than enough for you, and you will find fulfillment when you surrender to me as the king of everything. I will let you and bless you and lead you, and you'll find fulfillment in your life that way when I'm the king of everything. <clears throat> now, in this passage... I think what we have here is a definition of discipleship. This is what it really means to follow Jesus. And I think it's remarkable that G Mark, this follower of Jesus who's written this account of Jesus' life, he puts these events right at the hinge, the halfway point 
of his gospel. There's 16 chapters in the gospel of Mark and right here at the end of chapter eight, in the beginning of chapter nine, right here on the hinge of the book, Jesus, Mark records this account, these conversations of Jesus and Peter and the other disciples. And I think he's doing this on purpose to say everything in this story has been building up to this moment, moment and everything after this moment is an explanation of that moment. And as you see this unpacked, as you see this, you'll grow in your understanding of what it means to really make Jesus the king of everything, how it really, what really matters when it comes to following Jesus and being his disciple. You could also, I need to confess this to you, <coughs> just by way of accountability, the beginning, and uh, truth and advertising and all that kind of stuff here, I'm going to just say it, that, that every time I've looked at this passage, I've thought, boy, those would be four great messages. Each paragraph is so powerful, so rich spiritually. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm just going to preach four messages and roll them into one. And they've got to sit through the whole thing. And I realize you don't have to sit through the whole thing. So what we're going to do is instead of preaching four messages, that, which, we, which would be an excellent Bible study series, a sermon series, we're going to just look at the highlights of each of the paragraphs. In a sense, this is the drama of discipleship and there are four acts, four scenes that we're going to look at. And we're going to see that Jesus is the principal actor and the disciples are circulating in and out and the events are circulating in and out the scenes and the backgrounds change but Jesus is constantly on message getting his point across you've got to make me the king of everything you need to understand what it means to really follow me and the other main actor is Peter in this story and again he stands in there for us and in a sense, what Peter is asking and doing are the kind of things that you and I would ask and do when it comes to our relationship with Christ. And really, is Jesus the king of everything in my life and in your life as well? So the drama of discipleship in four acts, let's just say it that way. So beginning in verse 27, <coughs> it says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I got to tell you, these stories of Jesus and his conversations with Peter and the other disciples, just when I think I've got Jesus figured out, he throws me a curve. Peter is like the star pupil in the school of discipleship. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Ooh, 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 I know, I know, you are the Christ. And what does Jesus say? Don't tell anybody about it. What? You see, Jesus understands that people don't really get yet who he is. When he asks the, the disciples, who do people say I am? Who are the crowds, the people that I've been healing, the people I've been preaching to, the people who've been following me, the people who talk about me at the synagogues and in the marketplace, these people who are around us right now, who do they say I am? Well, you're Elijah. 
One of the prophets from the Old Testament. You're, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You're one of the other prophets. You're just a prophet. You're just somebody speaking for God. And Jesus understands that that's not the right answer. There's more to Jesus than just us thinking that he's a great man, a great religious leader, a great teacher, a great spokesperson for God. He's bigger than that, more than that. So Peter says, I know, you are the Christ. I mean, Jesus asked him, who do you say, emphatic there, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. The thing is, is that Peter's answer, that's like an A-plus gold star answer. That is the best answer you could get on a test on that question. You got it 100% correct. You get all the points for that answer for that question. When Peter is saying that Jesus is a Christ, you remember we talked about this last week a little bit, that word Christ, we're so used to it, we think it's Jesus' last name. No, it was not Mary and Joseph Christ and they had their son Jesus Christ. It's not that. It's Christ was a title, an honorific title that means the Messiah, the anointed one. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Messiah, Christos or Christ. And the people in the Old Testament that were anointed by God, there were three types of people. Remember, this is just a little bit of a review. The prophets were anointed by God. They were chosen by God and to speak for him. The priests were chosen by God. They were anointed by God to speak for him. The king was chosen by God. He was anointed by God so that he would rule for him. And so the prophet, the priest, the kings, they were all anointed by God. And this Christ, this Messiah, he would be like the super anointed person, like a prophet, like a priest, like a king, all rolled into one. He's like the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king to rule over everything. And in the Jewish frame of mind, they were expecting that this super anointed person, and remember the anointing literally was by oil, fragrant oil, but it was symbolic of the coming of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit coming upon their life, filling their life, flowing out of their life through that ministry. So this super anointed person chosen by God to be the super prophet, super priest, super king, to be the king of everything, Peter's saying, we believe that you're gonna be that person. We believe you are that person, not just a prophet, you are the king that's gonna rule over us. In the Jewish frame of mind, they thought, well, you know, when the Messiah comes, when the true anointed ones, God's chosen anointed one comes, he's gonna be such a priest that he is gonna get rid of the corrupt temple establishment and reform all of the temple worship and maybe even make a new temple and cleanse the temple. He's going to do that so that we truly can worship God. And he's gonna be such a king that he's gonna get rid of all these Roman occupiers, these soldiers that are tramping on our streets and taking our money from us and the taxes and he's gonna set us free. He's gonna be the perfect king and throw off our oppressors. And he's gonna be the perfect priest. He's gonna connect us to God and lead us into the presence of God and worship God. It's gonna be God's man on earth earth. That is who this super Messiah is, this king of everything. And that's what Peter's thinking. The crowds don't get that. They don't realize that yet about Jesus, but Peter does, speaking for the other disciples as well. No, you are the king of everything. You really are. But Jesus throws that curve and says, shh, don't you dare talk about it. Don't tell anyone. You might be saying, why would he do that? 
Part of it was because the crowds weren't ready to hear that yet. There was more that Jesus needed to say and do to help them understand. And he needed to wait until he got to Jerusalem and really had the final showdown with the religious leaders there on the last week of his life before they finally crucify him because he was the king of the Jews. That's what the sign above him on the cross said. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. That's what they wanted to say. Pilate says, no, he's the king of the Jews. And we're crucifying him here. He's the king of everything. Now Jesus wants Peter to understand that what he said is right, but he just doesn't quite understand it. I mean, Jesus is a good teacher. More than a teacher, of course, but a good teacher. You know how it is. Those of you that have taught children, your own children, or, or maybe someone in class, you've given them a formula that they need to learn, a recipe they need to understand. Maybe there's a, a definition for a word or, or a grammatical structure you've tried to communicate or something in science that you've tried to explain. And this, you can tell the student can kind of parrot back the definition word for word, but they don't have any understanding and they can't put it in their own words. They know the facts, but they don't get the meaning. They have knowledge, but no understanding. And Peter's got the knowledge. You're the Messiah. You're the super king. You're the king of everything. Yeah, you're right. But do you understand what that means? And Peter doesn't. Neither do the rest of the disciples. And I have a hunch I don't and you don't either. And that's why Jesus in the next three acts has to explain (laughs) what it really means to be the king of everything, what that looks like for him to be the Messiah, the anointed one, God's coming king. Because in Act 2, it says as they're going along there, and by the way, let me just jump back to Act 1 for a minute. It's important to understand the location of where this is taking place. It says Caesarea Philippi. Can you think of anybody kind of famous in the first century world whose name sounded like Caesarea Maybe they named a salad after him. Maybe there's a famous pizza chain named after him. Caesar, you're right. Got it. Way to go. Caesarea Philippi was, a, was the northernmost place in Israel that you could go to get away from Jerusalem. It was a place that was heavily Gentile. It was a place where they had built a temple to worship the emperor. And on the footsteps of that temple, in the region of that area where everybody was so pro-Caesar and so pro-idols and so pro-worshiping anything else other than the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the king of everything. He makes that declaration and we have to surrender to it. Now in Act 2, he begins to unpack what that definition really means and to give us understanding. And so as they're walking along the path there, it says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So there was no misunderstanding. The disciples understood exactly what Jesus was saying. What he was saying was, the Son of Man, referring to himself, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be rejected, and the religious leadership of Israel is going to kill him. He doesn't say yet how. He's going to kill, they're going to kill him. But three days later, he's going to come back to life. Now, how does that square, that information that Jesus has just given about himself, how does that square with Peter's understanding of who Jesus is, his knowledge? Jesus is the king of everything. Jesus is going to rule over our life. Jesus is the Messiah king that we've been expecting. 
I believe that, Peter says. The other disciples say it too. But Jesus is contradicting that. Because he says, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be killed. Because instead of restoring the temple, his body is going to be destroyed. And instead of throwing off the oppressors and setting the people free, he's going to be arrested, put on trial, and be condemned and killed and executed by the oppressors. Instead of connecting us to God, he's going to be cut off from God and die. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This does not compute. And that's why Peter then privately takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Same word that's used back in the previous act of Jesus rebuking the disciples. Now Peter says, oh, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to rebuke you. Jesus, that's silly. That's ridiculous. I kind of get the idea in my mind that as I picture this, is that Jesus is at the head of the group and the men are kind of following along and as he's walking along, they're kind of walking beside him and he's teaching them, he's explaining things, he's talking about what's happening and he's making it clear, this is the kind of king I am. And he's saying, I'm a king who's going to suffer. I'm a king who's going to be humiliated. I'm a king who's going to die. And Peter's not going to have any of that because that doesn't fit with his image of a king. And so he kind of goes marching up to the front of the line. He says, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you crazy? You're not going to, that's not going to happen. You're the Messiah. You're God's king of everything. You're not going to die like that. That's not going to happen. We're not going to let it happen. You're not going to do that. You can stop the storm. You can walk on water. You can feed the 5,000. You can raise the dead. You can cast out demons. Those Romans, those Jewish leaders, nobody's going to stop you. You're crazy. No. You're not going to die like that. Humiliated. But it's Jesus' turn to rebuke again. Because it says that he turned, Jesus did, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. You know, this is how you go from getting an A-plus and being the valedictorian to flunking out and getting an F. This is how you can be so right and yet be so wrong. Peter is absolutely right. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the king of everything. And yet he flunks out because he thinks that that Messiah king is not gonna die and suffer for our sins and set us free through his death. He doesn't understand that Jesus has to go through that suffering on the cross in order to defeat the devil, in order to defeat sin, in order to defeat death which he did on the cross. He doesn't understand and didn't listen to what Jesus said at the end because he's not only going to get rejected and going to die, but three days later he's going to come back to life. He missed that part. All he can focus on is the humiliation, not the exaltation. And Jesus is saying there is no king without the cross, no crown without the cross. There's no exaltation without the humiliation. This is how I become the king of everything over your life. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. Now he's just beginning to share this with his men. 
and train them that this is the kind of king I am. I'm a king who suffers to save. And if you don't want that, you really can't follow me. And he tells Peter, get behind me. (laughs) Don't go around telling me what to do. You do what I say. (laughs) You follow me. You're my apprentice. You're my pupil. I'm not yours. And that's how we often treat God. We give him advice. We tell him what to do instead of letting him tell us what to do and yielding to him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And that's a... (laughs) That would really make Peter blush. And that would have gotten the attention of all the disciples. And that really gets me wide awake for someone to call me Satan. Because it doesn't make sense that he would call Peter Satan. Because Peter's just saying the common sense, ordinary thing that we would all say. You don't really have to go to the mission field. You don't have to really witness to that friend. You don't really have to be honest on filling out those expense reports for your job. You don't have to really tell all that you owe on your tax. You don't have to really, and we cut corners all the time and we think that somehow we can get the glory without paying the price. And Jesus is saying there is no glory without going through all the garbage. There is no savior without the suffering. There is no honor without the humiliation. That's what's needed. That's the kind of king I am. You're talking like somebody from your neighborhood, your family. You're talking like every other human being. But you're really talking like Satan because that's what he said to me. I could have all the kingdoms of the world, everything that I will get by going to the cross. I can get all those kingdoms and skip the cross if I just would worship him. That's not the king I am, Peter. You and I think we know Jesus, but do we really? We think we know who he is and what he stands for and what he's doing, but do we really know him? Who do you say Jesus is? But I want you to see in Acts 1, Act 1 and Act 2, it's clear that Jesus is not just the Savior who suffers, but He's also the Savior who's glorified. He's not just the King who goes to the cross, but He's the King who comes back to life and rises from the dead. He's also the King of glory. But before we unpack that further, we've got to go through Act 3. Because in Act 3, this is where Jesus begins answering the biggest question in this chapter that's not asked out loud. The biggest question that's asked out loud is, who do you say I am? That's a question that every person here has to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? But the second question that's really important that's not asked out loud is, how do you follow Jesus? If you say he's the king of everything, what does that look like in your life? How do you follow him? And this is how Jesus explains. This is his definition of what it means to be a disciple, how to follow Jesus. And so look what he says in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to be my disciple, my student, my apprentice and pupil, if you really want to be my disciple, this is what you need to do. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
Now, if you've hung around the church for any length of time, if you've read the New Testament, grew up in Sunday school, you have heard this statement over and over and over again. Verse 34, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? You deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. What does it mean, though? What does it look like? Well, I'm not totally sure what it looks like for everybody, but I can tell you that in my life, it means that I have to say no to what I want to do and say yes to God's will. That's what self-denial is. Deny yourself. I need to be willing to say, God, I want to do what you want even if it goes against what I want to do. I've got to put you first. Your plan, your program, your process. I put that first. Not my will, but yours be done as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night of his arrest. I put you first. I do your will. That's what's most important. When it comes to the second thing, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Some of us have a cross on a necklace or other piece of jewelry. Maybe you have a cross as a tattoo. And there's nothing wrong with jewelry crosses and tattoo crosses. That's all fine and good. There's no problem with that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not even saying, you know, you've got to have a cross on your license plate or a bumper sticker on your car or a cross on your steeple at your church or in the back wall of your auditorium. That's not even what he's saying. The cross he's referring to is the cross beam. The horizontal piece of the cross, the cross beam that a condemned criminal would be forced to carry to the execution site. And so there's that criminal, a slave, a poor person, a foreigner, whoever they were, condemned to die for a capital crime. And they're carrying this cross beam on their shoulders and maybe they're chained together to the soldiers and they're being marched off to the execution site and they carry the instrument of their death to that location. And you get to lay down the cross beam when you finally get to the end and you think, oh, finally I rest until they throw you down and nail you to those cross pieces and then hoist the cross piece up and attach it to the, the horizontal beam, the post that's coming out of the ground. And there you suffer and hang and die. Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, you have to go on a death march. And he's not saying have a death wish. You know, I want to die. He's not saying that. He's saying that you've got to say no to yourself to such a degree that you're willing to put me first and my will first. It's like dying to yourself. You've got to be willing to suffer to do my will. You need to be willing to give up everything, your, even your very life. You have to be willing to give that up to follow me. It's to consider yourself already dead. So it doesn't matter what happens because I already died. I belong to Jesus. I'm carrying my cross every day. We say, that, you know, I've got a cross to bear, you know, this annoying husband that you're married to. I've got a cross to bear because you've got a cold. I've got a cross to bear because, you know, you've got a pay cut at work. I've got a cross to bear because there's a barking dog next door. Oh, the crosses I have to bear. Jesus is saying, no, it's not the inconveniences of life and the annoyances of life. It's the suffering that you do for him and his gospel. Because you choose to do his will, even if it kills you, you're willing to do it. 
We live in a land of freedom and prosperity and we have to suffer very little for Christ here now. But the day may come when we will as our brothers and sisters do in other countries today. Take up his cross and then he says, follow him. Do what he says. Go his way. Live your life according to his will. You have a family, don't leave your family. Live your family and lead your family and love your family the way Jesus would. Not necessarily give all your money away, but use that money and steward it in such a way, manage it in such a way that you're honoring Christ with your money. You're doing his will. Giving as you should, saving as you should, spending as you should. You're honoring Christ in your marriage and in your parenting relationships and in your relationships with your friends and you're just in all those places. It's not getting rid of those people or necessarily finding happiness, but it is, I'm willing to do your will, Lord, even if it hurts, to do what's right as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a wife, as a child, as a parent. I'm willing to put you first and I'll trust you to bring the happiness in your time. But I want to become like Jesus. I want to make him the king of everything, even in my marriage and in my home. And I'm willing to take up my cross and follow him. And I know that means dying every day and saying no to myself to say yes to your will. And there's a second question that's really important. It's not asked out loud, but we really need to ask it. It's not just who is Jesus and how do I follow him, but it's why in the world would I follow somebody that demands that? Why would I follow anyone who would demand that I be willing to die for him? What's up with that? That's crazy talk. And the answer that Jesus gives is found in verse 35 and following when he just simply says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. It's definite. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you see this here? He's simply saying, if you try to preserve your life by not following me, by not carrying your cross, by not suffering as I call you to suffer to do my will, if you try to skip out on doing all that stuff, you will not save your life. You'll actually lose it. You'll waste your life. You'll forfeit everything. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In this passage, when it says, these verses, when it says life there, he's not talking about the quality of life or, or biological life that we often hear about in scriptures. Pastors are fond of pointing out the difference between those two things. He's using a totally different word, and it's a word that means your soul, your very essence of your being, who you are as a person, who God has meant for you to become, who God's his plan for your life, his purpose for your life, all the stuff that you desire to become, the things that deep down inside that God has planted there to love and be loved, to, to achieve, to succeed, to accomplish, to live a life that's productive and fulfilling, all those things that God put there in the very core of your soul, your very being, you will never achieve those things. You will never experience those things. You'll never have those things. You'll forfeit it all. You'll waste all your life unless you choose to follow Jesus. 
in denying yourself and taking up the cross and following him. If he is the king of everything, then you will have all the life with meaning and purpose that you've been looking for. If he is the king of everything, then you will surrender to him in everything and let him rule over you. And Jesus says there is no life without surrendering to him in that way, even if it kills you. And he gives a very serious warning at the end of chapter 8 because he just simply says here, here at the closing dialogue of the act, he just simply says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he says, look, I'm coming back. Remember I said to you earlier, I'm going to suffer and die. That's true. I'm going to be rejected and humiliated and be killed. But I'm rising from the dead. And not only am I rising from the dead, but I'm coming back in power and glory. And I'm going to have my royal entourage with me. My posse is going to be with me. And it's not just a bunch of ragtag fishermen. It's the holy angels. And I'm coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And I will be king of every single thing when I come back. And if you're ashamed of me at that time, on my coronation day, I'll be ashamed of you. But if you're not ashamed of me and you deny yourself and take up your cross and you follow me, even if it kills you, I will never ever be ashamed of you. And you might be thinking, okay, why in the heck should we do this? Well, yeah, he is coming back in power and glory. And you might be thinking, well, how do I know he's coming back in power and glory like that? Verse 1 of chapter 9 says that he says, look, some of you are going to be alive and you're going to see this happen. And he's not saying you're going to live for the next several thousand years until I come back at the rapture and set up my kingdom. He's not talking about that. He's, he's saying I'm going to show you what my glorious return looks like. And that's what we have recorded at the beginning of chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, because it says just a week later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up into a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. He went through a metamorphosis, a transformation where the glory that was on the inside, the deity that was on the inside, the kingdom presence that was inside of him burst out. It could no longer be contained. And it just didn't leak and dribble out, it gushed out. It gloriously shone out from him. And it says that even his clothing started glowing. And I'm not talking about that, you know what, it just got really bleached and the sun was really bright, bright, clear day and there was a shaft of sunlight that came down on him like a cosmic spotlight. And you know, here he is with his fine, clean, dry, clean clothes. You know, all the mud stains are off and all the other dirt and food that it spilled. The sweat stain. Nope, nope, not washed and not just bright lights but the glory and the light is coming out from him. And we're not talking about sequins and we're not talking about, you know, other sparkly things, glitter on him. It's the glory of God coming out, his deity and his kingdom, his dignity is coming out. 
And it says that he was transfigured before him and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth can bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses, two of the greatest Jewish prophets. Moses the lawgiver. Elijah, the one who stood up to the prophets of Baal and led a revival in Israel's history. Both men uh, died in, in, in such a way that they were caught up to be with the Lord according to Jewish tradition. In the scriptures. And they're there talking to Jesus. And the thing is, is that Jesus is greater than Moses and he's greater than Elijah. And there he is shining in all his glory. And, that's, and they're, they're talking. And, and Peter is just so overwhelmed. Again, he can't keep quiet. <laughs> Jesus is a star pupil who flunked out. In this moment, he's overwhelmed with fear. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, remember that's what it means, my teacher, (laughs) which is like if I'm seeing my teacher glowing and looking like lightning's shining out from him and all this glory, I don't know that I'd call him teacher. I think I would have bowed down and started worshiping. But I have been nervous before and said stupid stuff. Have you? You've been nervous at a job interview, nervous you know, on your first date, nervous when you meet a new friend, new person at school. Uh, hi, how do you do? I'm Scott Moore. Uh, and I come away thinking, man, you're such an idiot. Why'd you say that? And I can't help but think that that's exactly what Peter is thinking. He's just so overwhelmed with the glory of God in this place, Moses and Elijah, the cloud, the light, the lightning, the whole thing. And all he can say is, Lord, I can build you a tent. Would you like to stay in a tent? And I'm thinking, here he is. He looks like God. Does he need a tent? No, but I'm willing to make you a tent. For you and Moses and Elijah, I can build three tents. And we could just camp out here in your glory. And it says that he was terrified. He was so scared he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what he was doing. And thankfully, somebody finally interrupts and starts talking sense. Because it says that they were enveloped with a cloud, it says in verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud. And would you read these words that came from the cloud with me? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Kind of like what was said, the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Kind of like what the Roman centurion is going to say at the foot of the cross after Jesus dies. This is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son. This is God in human flesh. Pay attention. Hear what he says and do it. That's discipleship. That's how you make Jesus the king of everything. You see him as the the God who is willing to suffer for you, the king who dies for you, the king who comes back in glory as the radiant, glorious son of God that they're getting an appetizer for, a, a foretaste of, a foreshadowing of here. Jesus in all his glory, this is what it's gonna look like when he comes back with all those holy angels, just in case you're wondering. He's not just the king who's been humbled, but he's the king who deserves all honor and all praise and all worship. He deserves our full surrender that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him because he's the king of everything who suffers for us and who is exalted for us and who is coming back for us. Listen to him. That's all we're trying to do in discipleship here at the chapel is help you and I listen to him. And do what he says as it relates to all these areas of our lives. And so when you think about where do I need to grow? What areas of my life on this cart, where do I need to grow? 
I'm thinking about, am I really listening to Jesus when it comes to these different realms of my life? Where do I need to grow? When I think about who, what do I have that I could share with others to help them grow? Lord, if you're the king of everything in my life, what could I give? Am I really listening to you and sharing that with others as well? Am I helping them walk with you also? My friends, if Jesus is the king of everything, then we will be utterly surprised. There are people here today, and I count myself in this group, I think I've got Jesus figured out. But then I see myself in Peter and I realize, no, you don't, Scott. They're full of, he's full of surprises. He's bigger and more beautiful and more bold and more blessed than you ever imagined. Listen to him. You've got a lot to learn still. And there's some of us who are saying, I'm not sure I really want to trust this Jesus. I mean, he's telling me to give up my life and follow him and suffer him and say no to myself. And I'm not sure I want to do that. But if he truly is the king of everything, if he truly is the Messiah, if he truly is God come in human flesh who suffered and died for us and rose from the dead and is coming back in power and glory, the radiant king of everything, then why in the world would you obey anybody else and go any other way? When Christ comes back, every knee will bow to Him and every tongue will confess that He indeed is the Lord. He is the owner and boss and King of everything. Why not recognize that now and live your life that way now and experience life to the fullest now with Him? So I invite you, come on this journey of discipleship with us. We're trying to listen to Jesus. I invite you to listen to Jesus too. I invite you to write on that, where do you need to grow? And put it down, that will really help us. Who can you help grow? What can you share to help others grow? Put that down too. Even if you say, oh, I've got a lot of things I need to grow in, but I don't know how I could help anybody. I bet you've got something you could put on both sides of that card. And I urge you to do that as well. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your presence today. And I thank you that truly in this passage, this story, this drama of discipleship, in these four acts, we see very clearly that Jesus, you are the king of everything. And I am praying, Lord, that we would surrender to you and make that so in our lives by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. And thank you that we can and must do this because he is the king who is coming back. The king of suffering and the king of glory. Help us to listen to him and do his will. I ask for your blessings and direction as we go forth from here. May we live our lives as Jesus, the king of everything, rules over us. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.